Welcome to uh, Witcast. I am again doing the second part with my friend Dina Dai. Um, Dina, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Yes, I spent the weekend up in the mountains. I went for an eight-mile hike. My calves are really sore, well, <laughs> but it was. Yeah, I do some exercise. I'm really excited. I'm really excited and happy that you joined me and uh, have a little conversation. Something kind of a a little bit informal. I just want to more or less have an idea about some of the things we've been talking about. Last time we spoke, we were talking about sacred spaces and the garden. And uh, this time around, I'm doing um, uh, research on a topic that we have discussed previously. And it's actually was you that uh, led me to do more research on that aspect of it. We've been talking about sacred spaces, Eden, Noah, and how you know, Adam was a gardener and how Noah was a gardener, how Yeshua is is a gardener and the motif of the gardener as a king. And also mm-hmm. you mentioned that in the ancient Near East, uh, kings was also were also considered trees. And right. that led me into this amazing research, um, trying to find more information on it. I got a few articles that I'm reading. Actually, in the book, Trees and Kings, a comparative, an- a comparative analysis on tree imagery in Israel, prophetic tradition, and the engineers by William R. Osborne. It's just a good informative. It's more like a, giving you information, and it's kind of cool because you're not going to find anything that's really new. But he he's mentioning some things that kind of catch your attention. So right. you can stamp on it. That's right. But he quoted a particular article that I went back and actually found. And I think the article was better than the book, but it usually happens, right? Yeah. Okay, so it's called Sacred Trees in the Garden of Eden and Their Ancient Near Eastern Precursors by Michaela Baux. You probably read this article. And, um, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. They made some really cool, um, interesting connections here. All right. The reason why I wanted to do this with Cass with you was you are, you, you're really becoming a, what would I call it? You, 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 you're opening the, the body of Messiah to think outside of religious mindset and understanding biblical context. I think you and I have been doing this for a while. You know, engineering, Eastern studies, honor and shame, all the stuff that we've been covering. But you've did a really good job in your books, your two books, and I think you're working on the Noah books, so you're going to tell us a little bit about that in a little bit. But what you've really done and I like about your books is that you've taken a, uh, a, uh, a story based on real historical background and put right. it all together. And it's really, really quite amazing the way you did that. And what I want to talk about is the importance of understanding metaphors in Scripture. Although we can get in trouble when we say everything are metaphors, but now I understand that the Bible uses a lot of metaphors to convey a message to an audience that understood these things. That he doesn't have the Bible didn't have to go into over explanation of certain things because they were living in that time frame. Correct? No, absolutely. And and I know this is kind of dangerous territory, but they wrote the, the writers wrote that way. That's how they looked out at their world. They were describing the heavens and the earth and the trees and the flowers and all this, but they wrote it in a metaphorical way. And so when in our modern scientific rational world, when we start talking about metaphors, people freak out. So it's it's a language we're uncomfortable with. We're not used to thinking in symbology, but the ancient writers, they took historical events, but they put their own interpretation on it. They're simply taking an event that's historical, geographical, or whatever, but they are presenting it in a way with their interpretation. And that's really what any historian would do, is they look at the facts, and then they give you their interpretation of the facts. Yeah, well, and that's what the, what the ancient writers did. Why do you think that right now, uh, religious people, just for, for lack of a better word, why is it that religious people are so afraid? Because if you read the book of Revelation, uh, 80% of the book, and I'm being conservative, um, I'm being, yeah, 
80% of the book is basically based on metaphors, dealing with yeah. situations, dealing with imperial worship, dealing with the, the Caesar of that time and all the struggles that we're going through. But that does not mean that there's not a, re a cycle that has been re repeated. Right. Oh, yes. I mean, over in every... Because basically, when it comes down to it, you have two kingdoms in conflict. You have God and his kingdom, and you've got the kingdoms of this world and the kings ruling over. I mean, it's just the two kingdoms colliding all through the Bible. Right. And so when our king is ruling and reigning and seated on the throne, the cosmos is in order, all is well. When the kings of the nations of this world are seated on the throne, we live in a state of chaos and disorder. So the book of Revelation is really showing you this contrast between order and disorder. And of course, we have to look at it from the perspective of the first century and events on the ground, because that's what the writer is writing about. But now the writer is taking those events and writing them in a, in a form that they were a little more used to than what we are. I do think since the age of reason and enlightenment in the 1700s, everything went by the wayside. And so science and religion were separated. Religion was put in a box and we just kind of went off the deep end. So uh, our job like is to take people back. Well, so that means that the, the biblical interpretation is based on understanding, like I've always told you, treaties, like I've always said, uh, culture and idioms. Yeah. And in this case, the the, uh, the 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 metaphors that the writers understood. By the way, you know one thing that I found, like Ezekiel Ezekiel thirty one talks about Pharaoh as a tree. Daniel mm -hmm. four talks as Nebuchadnezzar as a tree. Yes, they were cedars of Lebanon. Exactly. You know, and that's because those trees were these great trees that were tall and their canopy but filled just, the earth. Yeah. That's what the king his canopy filled the earth, so everyone came under his sovereignty or under his shade. You know, I, I, it's incredible how I, I had an opportunity to do this teaching, the long form, in Port St. Joe this past weekend. And they had they gave me the time. They wanted me to expound on it. So it was okay. great. So what I did, I established the first half of the teaching. I talked about righteousness and justice as the duty of Israel. We are the trees of righteousness. Thus, we are planted in the house of the Lord, the righteous. So I defined for them what righteousness was according to the biblical definition. And then I went yes. into... Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I digress a little bit here. But um, this concept of justice and righteousness, which goes back to, to judgment and justice, we when we think of judgment, we, we see a God in heaven with a sledgehammer, you know, pounding yeah. us. Yeah. But really, the, the, the real definition of, of justice and judgment is that that uh, equals maintaining the cosmos. Right. So how does one maintain the cosmos? So the king was, every king was given what we call the adut or the testimonies. And those testimonies were the laws that would, he would use to govern or instruct his kingdom. And those testimonies, in the case of the Torah, if you will, uh, was based on justice and righteousness. So, so every king was to operate that way. So that's why the Bible tells us that Solomon and David were called to do righteousness and justice. That's why when Messiah returns, he's going to call Adonai our righteousness because he's supposed yes. to maintain the order of the cosmos and provide exactly. for, for his kingdom. Yeah. And see, we, we tend to take Yeshua out of the greater... I mean, the greater message of what he came to do was to restore the whole cosmos. And we kind of keep him in this little box in the first century on a, you know, on the cross, if well, you will. Well, and yet the whole message. John 3.16 validates what you're saying. Yeah. Because yes, God because, so the cosmos. Yes. And the love part is about the covenant. Right. Because oh, love yeah. and covenant are, you know, part of the same thing. So, yeah, this thing is really big because... He is the rightful heir to the throne and the one who would be raised up from the earth, if you will, to be the king. You know, so, with that being said, let's go to the verse. Um, I want to give you some examples to the audience. And, you know, we always talk about why Yeshua 
you know, curse the fig tree, right? Mm -hmm. Many people, I'm telling you, I've heard stories and stories and stories about, you know, stories about why. But no one has come up with a consensus until we start looking into all these metaphors and the language of the ancient world, right? So as I was doing my research, I began to study the context again. And I'm looking for the verse if I find it now, because you know how it is when I need stuff, I never get it. Well, I'm the same way. <laughs> you know how it is. All right. So and I can never quote a verse. I never remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Yeshua cursing the, uh, or basically, yeah, making a, a decree against the fig tree. Right. And people are always trying to figure out, but wait a minute, why did he do that? When you go back right. to that chapter and you read the previous, uh, uh, in Matthew 21, right? Matthew 21, verse 18, 19. Yeshua's hungry, and now he goes, and he goes to the fig tree, and there's no fruit in it. So understand that the fruit is supposed to be the righteousness and justice of the leadership, because the, the tree can represent... Jeremiah. Right. Jeremiah so, talks about the good things in the bag, because it's dealing with the leadership. Yes. So yes. In, the, in, the, in the first part of the chapter, we never connected with the events of Yeshua going into the temple, which is the garden. And in the garden right. is the tree of life. And the priests, yeah. the priests have pomegranates in their garments. So there was supposed to be a, prefig a prefigured of Adam who's supposed to feed the nations. So we, we miss it because they are introducing corruption and oppression to the people. Plus Herod right. in chapters 14, he is killing uh, John the Baptist and, 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 and lusting after somebody else's wife. And now we see the contrast between Yeshua having compassion on the people, healing the people, and then feeding them. So the fig tree now, with this understanding, is basically Yeshua saying, Israel and the leadership is supposed to be a, fr a fruit tree, providing fruit to the hungry. They're not producing, they're not doing their function. So therefore, the leadership is going no longer to produce fruit. They're going yes, to be that's judged. key in the first century because the people were being oppressed by the temple leadership. They were being oppressed by King Herod and sons, and they were being oppressed by Rome. So it was this three-pronged you know, pronged attack. And into that environment, see, if, if we look at the Bible and the way it was written, we will understand that the whole Bible is about kingship. Like everything is about kingship and how rulers rule, how tyrants rule and oppress the people, and how Yeshua came to deliver the oppressed and the poor from tyrants and despots and totalitarian dictators. This is our reality from, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. It's not any different in our own lives, because when we're living under oppressive regimes, we suffer. And, you know, we could talk about that just in our own nation. Yeah. I wanted to mentioned something as well uh okay did you put this up yeah yeah i'm trying to put it up so that way we can read it together and expound okay. on a few things here's here's another little detail so uh, you know the 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 story in the judges about the three trees and come and worship me and come under my shade and all that right, right. okay so certainly that applied to certain judges in, of the period but as you what I want to say is that much of what's of the Bible, once it was codified and once it was finally put together, has as its perspective the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonian exile. So those three trees, the, the sycamore fig, the olive, and the vine, actually were the monarchy of, of Saul, David, and Solomon. So... King Saul was represented by the sycamore, the fig. King David was uh, was symbolic of the olive, which is very important. And Solomon, King Solomon, was the vine. So everything was about exalting the Davidic dynasty. So this is also one of the reasons why the fig tree was cursed, because that takes us back to King Saul. Of course, Judah and Benjamin became one. But everything is about the restoration of the Davidic dynasty through the olive tree. Right. So the story of Noah actually is a replay, if you will, of the Babylonian exile. And I'll be going into all that in my book. 
But what's so significant is, of course, the dove brought the leaf of an olive to Noah. This is classic language of the ancient world and trees, yeah. because we see something at Samak, a sprout, yeah. coming out of the earth after the dry land appeared. And what does he bring an olive leaf? It's a statement, a declaration of the restoration of the Davidic dynasty, the olive tree. That's prophetic. So, so, it, yeah. One of the things that I've also been really um, looking into, something that Ryan, we were talking one day, and he goes, hey, man, parables are when dealings with trees, and the parables are all judgment, divine judgment. And, and I find it really interesting, you know, that once, to all the audience who's listening right now, please consider, you know, getting Dina's book and also consider doing, uh, listening to that teaching that I'm recording this week on the trees of righteousness. Why? Because there is a language that the Bible uses that was not written for the 21st century. It was written for the audience back then. Thus, we owe it to ourselves to tune in to the biblical language and metaphors to understand the huge prophetic significance behind it. For example, something that Joe Good and I, we were, we were doing some studies together, and he said, by passing, Dina, you know how he is. We just said, yeah. he says something, he keeps going. And we were in Jerusalem, and he goes, hey, Rico, you know that the olive tree, the cultivated olive, and then you have the wild olive branch. He goes, mm -hmm. you know that the wild olive is actually an oil wood, and it's the oleaster, did I pronounce it right? Oleaster tree. And, and 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 when I began to search it out, he sent me the article I've been looking for. I've been looking all over. It says normally when Paul is talking about in Romans, and this is important about trees because Romans eleven is saying that God cut some of the branches, not the tree, some of the branches. Right. He's pruning the tree because it was not providing fruit. We already saw that. Yeshua talked about this. We already got it with the parables. But what's interesting is that. When Paul says, what well, you've been grafted in against nature. And I thought that was very interesting. So I asked Joe, and he said, well, normally the cultivated branches, the olive tree, is grafted into the, you know, wild olive. Because they can sustain whatever, some things that they do by nature. But it's contrary to nature to put in the branches of the wild olive and the oil wood into the cultivated olive tree. Because... The fruit of the wild olive is inedible. Right. And I'm going, oh, right. my God. And that's why Paul says, do not boast against the natural branches. That means Israel, you know, the nation, the Jews, and, and also everybody else. But taking it a step further, that olive tree represents the Davidic dynasty, dynasty, King David. So because the trunk of every tree was the king. Right. But what I was trying to allude to earlier is when Yeshua uh you know, curse the fig tree, it was basically taking out anything related back to King Saul. King Saul was no longer connected at all with the dynasty that would be raised up. And of course, Yeshua had to come from David's dynasty. Right, right. So the tree language of Paul in Romans is also talking about the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. So there's a twofold uh, meanings behind because Yeshua is the branch of Jesse, of the Davidic. We understand that. Well, this is the problem here. The translation is not accurate. A branch is a different thing. A shoot. The Samak is a sprout. It's a sprout. So any, a king, and I tried to uh, talk about that, of Adam coming forth out of the earth. That's right. king language. Sprout coming up from the earth. That's the language of the king, and that sprout would become this giant tree. It's like, it's so, like Daniel 4. The branch thing is not a good translation. It's like Daniel 4. It's the same thing. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he came and he sprouted out into a huge tree. Exactly. And every in his subjects, the birds of the air, came under his shade or sovereignty. So That's the book the of Jonah talks about this. So the book of Jonah talks about how Jonah was upset because the Lord, you know, he uh, he forgave the people. He sat under a tree to to, and the Lord got upset. So there's a big big significance. One of the things that I'm, I'm sure you know this, but because uh, you're studying on the book of Noah, so you know everything about Noah. Not yet. <laughs> uh, so 
when we start looking about the the calendar being used, the civil calendar being used at that time, that uh, the that the ark rested on Mount Ararat on the 17th of Nisan, just like Yeshua was resurrected on the same day, thousands of right. years later. That's really really interesting. How now you connect the resurrection of Yeshua and also all the events that happened with Noah as a new creation yeah. motif. And well. The language, I mean, mountains are typically represent temples. Right. Connecting between heaven and earth. And while Mount Ararat could well be Mount Ararat, the con Mount Arar, Arar actually means that the curse has been removed. Yeah. That's off true. the mountain. So now the temple is, you know, lands, if you will, well, on a mountain where the curse is. Isn't and that, so isn't the, that what Yeshua came to do? He came to forgive the debt for the lord to forgive the debt that would allow us to return to the garden yes and and he talks about himself as a temple as right. the connecting point between heaven and earth so there there's multiple layers here but um you know our our goal i know with both of us is to try to understand the language of the ancient world and to help people make sense of the bible because let's be honest if we just read it with 21st century eyes, there's a whole lot that doesn't make any sense. And so now, I mean, I get people emailing me because they're starting to put it together and it's starting to make sense to them when we Absolutely. understand the ancient Near East language. And it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, even in some of the Jew Jewish scholarship, they're not that interested in this world. Oh, they don't care. Uh, they don't care at all. I, I talked to a few rabbis. They, don't, they could care less. Exactly. And I'm going, you know, you can't start from the Middle Ages and figure out what the Bible's saying. Well, you know, you, know, you know, that was basically my motivating factor in studying um, engineer East. I, I did some research. I'm thinking, wait a minute, let me let me time out because it was so revolutionary at the time that I'm thinking Judaism, it, modern Judaism starts after the destruction of the temple. Christianity began as religious organization. 300 years after Yeshua, 300 whatever years. So we're trying to take it back to the time of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Let me read you one verse, and I'm going to let you break it down. Now, I also understand that now because now we are aware of the language. But many people read the parable of mustard seed, and when they read this verse, they don't really understand the deep meaning and prophetic uh, understanding Yeshua is conveying by when he says this. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read it. And I want you to explain uh, the metaphor within it and what is really talking about. Yeshua has given a very deep meaning to this that people in the first century would have understood. He says in Luke chapters 13, verse 18 and 19 says, Yeshua asked, then Yeshua asked, what is the kingdom of God like? Uh, what should I compare to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree. And the birds perch in its branches. Dina, go. Okay. Well, uh, there's actually a lot in this. I, I Let me just mention that I just finished a series uh, called The Parables from Exile to Return. Nice. So it's a whole different, yeah, it's just a different way of looking at the parables. And I did sort of, I went into a whole lot of detail on the mustard seed and kind of how it grew and when it grew and, and its connection actually to Rome. Um, there is a whole thing about Rome and the mustard seed. But the idea, it, it's not, you know, it talks about it being the smallest seed, but it isn't actually. But it's the one that produced, it, it's kingship language right. of a tree coming forth out of the earth and producing, you know, abundance and shade. And again, I, I mentioned it earlier, the idea, whenever you see the language of birds of the air, you know, nesting in a tree, you're speaking of his, the subjects of the king. That is the place where they rest is in the canopy of, of the tree. So this is, the kingdom is like this tree that spreads and creates a canopy and the subjects of the king come and nest or rest under. And and uh, I don't know how far to get into this. The, the language of kingship is, is language in the Bible that has to do with a discussion of heavenly, the heavenly realm and heavenly events. So when, when 
Paul is talking about not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. He's not talking about things just floating around in outer space that are going to come and get you. He's talking about language of kingship because the realm of the king was heaven. And so he's tear, he's tearing down these king these kingship models, this the rulers and kings of this world. He's talking about, you know, not wrestling against kind of thing. So yeah. it, again, this language is all, I mean, it's hard. I the more I get into it, the more I realize I don't really understand a lot of it well, still. I mean, we are the same journey. There's a particular particular thing that I was reading. I'm gonna read it also, which I think is important. Listen to the language and um, see if I find it real quick. I'm, I'm jumping the PowerPoint because I want to get here. But I find it really interesting when Paul was talking about giving. And he used a very unique language. In 2 Corinthians 9.16, remember, uh, the audience who's listening, remember that Paul is also using the same metaphors as the Bible does in the Old Testament of the Tanakh, of trees and fruit and seed as a oh, representation yeah. of Israel, okay? Yeah. And now he's teaching the Corinthians, which is a complete pagan country, you know, Corinth, and uh, he's teaching a new audience, the rules of conduct and the body. Now, I want to read this from verse 6 to 12. We can talk about this as we finish here, uh, Dina, but I think it's important that we connect some of these principles so people, when they read it, they know, oh, wow, we need to go back to its context to get a deeper understanding. He says, remember this, whoever sows experiently would also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously would also reap generously. Each one, each of you, I'm sorry, each of you shall give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you. Now comes the reciprocity and the reason why Israel must bless the nations and that God will bless Israel. It says, um, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endure forever. He's quoting Psalm 112.9. Now he who supplies seed, which is God, uh, to the sower, which is us, and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. It's connecting righteousness as the fruit of the believer. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God, making God's name great. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions to thanks of thanks to God. So, Dina, the whole idea of us, of Paul using this whole metaphor, is teaching our, our duty as the seed of Abraham to bless the nations and not to worry about the little that we have because he will provide for us. This is kingship language. Yes. This is what the king is supposed to do. It's what Adam is supposed to do down to Noah. Israel, of course, raised up as to be kings, a kingdom yes. over the nations. And so what was the king responsible to do? He was responsible to bring blessing and prosperity and fruit and all that stuff to, the, to his subjects or to those who... Uh, who were serving him. And so that's us. So this is our relationship to Israel in the same way as any king who would be who would bring blessing. And, and this kind of takes us into the realm as well as of the Holy Spirit, because the fruit of the spirit comes from the tree who is the king, the king given the adut, the wisdom of God to be able to govern his the nation that he's ruling over and producing this kind of fruit. So we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And so we're supposed to produce this fruit as a tree produces this fruit. All right. So what do you say about to the people that this is what you hear on, on Facebook and all over the social media? This is what they hear. Oh, I don't need anything uh, that the Jewish people teach. I don't need nothing but scripture. 
because the spirit of God leads me. What do you say to them, people? Uh, usually I don't say anything. <laughs> it's not worth arguing over. Well, this is the podcast. Uh, You're supposed to say something exciting. I'm just this kidding. Is your chance to be controversial uh, now, Dina. Come on, help me out here. No, I don't like to be. Well, the problem, I mean, this is a huge topic we're dealing with. And, and the Holy Spirit has moved into the realm of feeling, emotion, and some sort of weird energy that's leading and guiding you on. But if you go back to the ancient world, you understand the element of the spirit actually is connected to wisdom. And every king was given wisdom in order to govern. Yeah. And so that's why Solomon asked for wisdom. Well, because Solomon. wisdom produces fruit well, and so know, the whole proverbs wisdom, is dealing with this and wisdom is called the tree of life in the book of yeah. proverbs chapter three i mean it's the same it's it's the same language over and over and over again yes wisdom is a tree of life that produces fruit in contrast to the harlot you know we have this this these two female figures because wisdom in the ancient world was associated with women but we won't go there at all but uh so the really the 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 concrete meaning for the spirit is the concept of wisdom and so through wisdom you produce fruit and you exercise common sense and you have what you need to govern your world but you and cannot, again we go back but we cannot what? attain that wisdom if we do not understand the language in which it was written and oh wow. I agree. And when somebody yeah. tells me all I need is scripture, well, I always tell them the Bible was not written for us. It was written to a different people. We need to understand the biblical definition. I did that this weekend. I did the teaching and I give them definitions. And as we go along the verses, I will tell you, I'll read the verses. What does that mean? And they understood. Oh, that means peace. That means cosmos. That means the king. That means uh, righteousness. That means help the poor. You know, now everyone understood it. And yeah. if we completely, we need to get out of this Christian mindset yeah. that yeah. Oh, all I need is a spirit, you know? Yeah. No, and people have absolutely no idea what the spirit is. The spirit is not an, an ethereal being you know, leading and guiding you into some, you know, spaceship. It's the spirit that moves. The spirit is designed to move upon kings through the concept of wisdom for the king to be able to govern rightly and justly, to lift up the poor and the oppressed. We have the same responsibility as the king because we are now, if you will, a kingdom of priests. And that is by the work that Yeshua did through his death and burial and resurrection. We are now, that wisdom is now, we, that is imparted to us. I mean, you know, we, people have lost their minds. It's, and they don't even have any common sense. Like yeah. common sense is part of the wisdom thing, Yeah. you know? And well, I, I tell people, if you want to build your house and you want to make it strong and you want to operate your house, like, you know, the kingdom of heaven, then read the book of Proverbs, study the book of Proverbs, and mirror your family after the book of Proverbs. Because you know, that, that is the wisdom of the universe given to Solomon, who passed it on to us. You know, it's really amazing to me because the Bible uses the same language, the fruit of the Spirit. And, you know, our lives have to reflect the character of God. Our everyday actions have to have a meaning. And sadly... We have just moved from the realm of religion on one side of the scope, and we've gone, we brought it with us. We haven't let go of who we were. Right. And well, people are scared to let go of that. They're terrified because the, the, what we're presenting them is kind of, whoa, whoa, that's just so outside the box. I'm not ready for this. So there's this, this fear of, you know, where is this going to go? Because we've had this comfort zone for a couple hundred years in which we've decided what the Bible means about everything. My, my only concern, my only concern is when we are now so in love with the tree of knowledge that we no longer accept the facts of the tree of life. And I think, you know, that's really happening right now. I've had people that I could show them facts, research, evidence, and they still want to do whatever they want to do. They're so in love with the tree of knowledge and having their own interpretation that they forget that our duty is not to be um, Hebrew scholars 
our duty is to be servants of God who will bring fruit to the nation. Now, I study. One thing the king was supposed to do. The king was supposed to take care of his subjects, and his subjects, you know, needed help, and they were poor and downtrodden and whatever. That was his job. Yeah. That's our job, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I agree with you. Um, you know, everybody have different roles, and we produce fruit different ways. And yeah. I think our role in our trust as, as a tree of the kingdom is to be king. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, trees of righteousness. And we are providing the fruit of the word that we're learning. Hopefully it would edify and it would um, build them up. Now, one thing that I've noticed, and this is something that is very true. Okay, I can, we can validate this by their actions. Christianity in the systems of religion, they have cut the tree down. And they say, spiritual Israel now is the tree. Now, they forget that the gardener is God. We're supposed to be the branches. We're not the gardener. You're not right, supposed right. to cut a king's... When, when, this is what I've learned. When you cut when you cut some king's, another king's trees in his mm -hmm. garden, and I remind everybody that the, land, that the earth belongs to God. He right. created all things. So if we cut a tree in his garden metaphor in regards to the kingdom and we plant another tree we just declare victory over that king exactly right and when the system of christianity decided to cut the tree of israel and put themselves instead of they don't yep. know what they've done that's an affront to the authority of of the lord on the earth that's military language that's military language military expeditions you can find yeah, a little bit exactly. of that in Called in Cosmos by Morales. Thank you for, yeah. thank you, by the way, for recommending Morales to me. You know, lately yeah. I've been thanking you too much. What's the deal with that? Hey, I'm, I'll take it. Absolutely. At least, you know, at least you know I'm not taking all the credit, right? No, no, I appreciate it. I mean, I, I appreciate having, you know, this opportunity to share these things with the folks. Because I, I do see people are really growing. Yeah. And... Uh, they're hungering, and when when some when the light bulb goes on, and so, you know they're able to connect these things. That's like the greatest gift the teacher can give to the student. Oh, absolutely, is they you know they put they put it together. So I mean I'm excited, and uh, you know I I I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, but you know I'm learning and growing in this, and um, to to recognize just how important it is to put the Bible back in its culture and context and language. Uh, I don't think there's anything more important. I remember when I did my first teaching on the ancient Near Eastern context, remember that revive? And uh, yeah. and you looked at me like, okay, pretty brave, you know? <laughs> and people thought I was nuts for a few years, man. I told somebody, there was one guy who texted to email me. He goes, man, I like you. I think you're a nice guy, but you going nuts with this stuff. You know, what are you doing? I said, look, man, just study with me for a year. Just just, just right. be open to it. After one year, he actually did. After one year, mm -hmm. he goes, oh, my God, how in the world can we live with this understanding? That was seven years ago, Dina. I mean, we've grown a lot in seven years yeah, in a lot absolutely. of this understanding. So yeah. I highly recommend every single one of us um, that are listening to Dina and you know, get her books, go to her website, you know, let's learn this language the Bible speaks about. You know, I've, I've, I've been a huge beneficiary, beneficiary of your understanding because you always say one thing that drives me to go research, you know, Good. And, and, and I like that, you know, because I think, I think one of the things that is lacking is that there's not enough teachers talking to each other, exchanging and be willing to say, you know, you know that area better than I do. Can I learn that? Or, you know, exchanging and be honest that we can't figure it all out. And it's exciting yeah, to me to I know. Agree. It's exciting to me to know that I can call you. We can have a conversation. And you must say something that encourages me to go research. And I come up with a teaching on it. And now i got to do the research. And then to call you and then exchange ideas and see if I'm on the right track. Or maybe you have more to add to it. I think that's how we grow. And sadly... We are now in a journey of people who they have so much knowledge in such a short time from the, from the time they come to Christianity that now they go to the other extreme and they want no help whatsoever. 
And we come I, into dangerous ground, I think. Yeah, I think people who have a sincere heart to learn will come back from that. Like they'll be, they'll get tired of the whole knowledge thing because it doesn't produce anything good for the kingdom. And yeah. they'll just sort of, the pendulum will swing back, but there'll be others who, you know, who will never hear. Um, they'll, you know, they're, I can't, that world I can't even handle because uh, there has to be a balance between what we produce and what we learn. And we have to be his hands extended in this earth. And to, you know, to see the kingdom, our job is to see the kingdom of heaven spread, expand to the four corners. So that the name of the creator will be exalted and may, and be magnified. Amen. I, you know, was listening to a, um, uh, it was Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager talking. And, it, you know, I, it was one of those, he said something and I went, bingo. And, you know, the question we always ask is, why is there evil in the world? And, you know, Dennis Prager responded, the question should be, why is there good in the world? Right. Because the natural state of the world is what I call the field of thorns and thistles and briars where nothing is produced and it's dry and dead. The eternal is the garden being spread over the earth. And it requires all of us to cultivate and to water and to plant and prune and do all that you need. So the garden spreading, expanding on the earth requires work. Yeah. The natural order of things requires no work. Just leave that garden alone. And it's going to go back to seed and it ain't going to produce anything. That's true. And so, you know, it's the question is, why is there good? Well, there's good because there is a kingdom people all about spreading the kingdom you know, to the, to the whole, whole world. Amen. That's our job. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I'm really excited about is sharing the message of our function in the body as the fruits of the trees of righteousness. And it's interesting that now I understand why the seed of Abraham have been scattered over all over the nations is to reclaim the authority and the sovereignty of God among the nations. Now, can you imagine when Messiah returns, you know, the book of Revelation tells us that he's going to wage war because the, we are going to be oppressed. Gardeners do. Exactly. Gardener King wage war to take back territory. Exactly. And he's going to take you know, back the earth. So it, it, I was reading about Nebuchadnezzar and uh, I should, I should, uh, I should Bani, Bana, be. Oh, Bana Paul. Man, that name kills me. The second. Oh, all those names. <laughs> yeah. Um, when he goes into like a military expedition and how. Nebuchadnezzar, when he used to go military expedition, bring all the trees back to plant it in his garden. Now think about this. Psalms chapters 92 says yep. that the righteous will be planted in the house of the Lord. That is huge to think that it now is. the Lord is going to take us from the corners of the earth, the farthest places. And he says in Psalm, he tells us straight up. He says, God blesses those who love his word. That's Psalms 1. I'm sorry, but I'm looking for this one specifically. And you already know it, Psalms 92. He says mm -hmm. um, that the righteous will be planted in the house of the Lord, and they were and they will they, they will bear fruit in old age. I'm paraphrasing. Um, there we go. It says the righteous will flourish like a palm tree, and they will grow like cedars of Lebanon. Dina, now I understand why in the Torah. There were no trees allowed to be planted on the Temple Mount or Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem for that matter. I always wonder why. Now I get it. Because we are supposed to be his trees planted on his courts. Amen. You see, and it goes back to what I was talking about. Bible is all about kingship. Yeah. It's all, you know, we have all this language of these foreign kings from Babylon, Assyria, coming to attack Israel is supposed to be God's messenger king. So all the, the, the chapters of uh, Isaiah 40 through 56, uh, it's this, the servant, not just the servant, it's the servant king. That All that language in there is about what it means to be a king. Uh, you know, everything is about, again, these two kingdoms colliding. And Israel is supposed to be raised up just like any other king to rule over the nations Amen. so that they would all be drawn to her Amen. and there's supposed to be one nation under god indivisible no <laughs> <laughs> that's good yeah. good hey dina um, 
So you're going to be in a few places in the next few months. So I know of one specifically that you're going to be at. There's a temple course in January. I know. And, I'll be uh, there. Yeah, you're going to be there. It's January 10th. Starts on yeah. the 10th and ends on the 13th from Thursday to Sunday. It's going to be in Orlando. If you're interested, please visit wisdomintorahevents.com, wisdomintorahevents.com, and sign up. It's going to be you, uh, uh, Ryan White, myself, and Joe Good. And you're also going to be, next week, we're going to be together at Sukkot, and uh, we're going to have some fun, and we're going to be presenting some of these principles. Hey, we should do a campfire and talk about this. Just talk about the role of metaphors in the Bible. I think it'll be quite interesting if we do something around my campfire. You bring the uh, the kosher marshmallows, and you know, and I'll bring the water. <laughs> I understand, but I will turn it into wine. No, <laughs> you you go, man. If you turn that into wine, man, yeah, I, it'll look be at a it. really good to go. <laughs> no, but, hey, well, guys, I want to encourage everybody to go to the Temple Conference in January because hey, I'm, I'm telling you. Best time last year. It was so much fun, and it was just—I mean, yeah—you're stuffed full of material you can't breathe. But it, you know, if you want to understand the scriptures from this perspective, there's no better place. Yeah. So come. Yeah, we're us. going to be covering a lot of uh, first-century language. We're going to talk about. I may do this teaching. I'm not sure yet, but I think I want to introduce, you know, temple metaphor. Why we study the temple? I think that is important for people to understand not only the geography, topography the cisterns, the, the function, but also why do we study the temple? You know, the temple was a garden. The temple was designed as the garden. So we need to understand right. this. Um, yeah, I have a book about that. You got a what? <laughs> I got a book about that. Uh, yeah, I know, right? You got a good book. <laughs> Tell us the name of your books. You got two, you're working on your third one. Yeah, so I'm working on the temple revealed in Noah's Ark because Noah's Ark is the pattern of the temple, the sacred sanctuary. And I probably, uh, I actually at Sukkot and maybe at, uh, I haven't figured out what I'm doing exactly in January, but I'm going to be talking about the vineyard and the vine because Yeshua saying, I am the vine. It's not like I am the vine. <laughs> Again, this is the tree language, the connecting point between heaven and earth in a vineyard, which yeah. is a picture and pattern of the temple. So what's that? Yeah, I like the fact that he says, I am the vine, my father's the vine dresser. He's the gardener. Exactly. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, your books yeah. have been really amazing. I really appreciate your work and I really like what you do. And I think that, you know, people don't realize just because the Bible uses a lot of metaphors does not mean that uh, there's not a very huge, deeply a rooted message of redemption and salvation and restoration and cosmos being restored to God's order. Now to think about this, and I'll finish with this, is we have to feel really encouraged to know that the creator still believes enough in, enough in us that's still willing to use us at this time and season in order for us to bear the fruit. This is why we have to do the Lulav and the uh, on Sukkot. Everybody yeah. shows up with plants, and we are waving them in the temple. We have been planted in the temple in the house of the Lord. That's amazing. Amen. We this is hard to wrap our heads around, but we because we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, etc. We are we are participating in the restoration of the cosmos. Oh man, I agree. I think that, and that people take, but people take that what you just said, and they say, well, we eliminate. The Levitical priests and uh, I'm sorry, the Levitical system and the high priest and the and the sons of Aaron, they don't realize that we're doing that function. We're not yes. doing the office. We're doing the function right. of exactly, and, exactly. You know, we learn, like for example, a priest intercedes. A priest uh, uh, teaches the Torah. A priest uh, um, protects the sacred spaces. A yes. king yes. rules. A king has authority. A king has leadership. A king, you know those righteousness and justice. I mean, we don't understand those principles. No, we do not. And so our hope and our goal in all this is to try to help people make sense of it and and to find our place to serve and our what and exactly what our function is as a living stone in the temple, you know, structure. Amen. Well, my friend, my friend, my sister, my friend, 
I really appreciate you taking the time today to uh, spend some time with me and do this together. I always enjoy meeting with you, and thank you for allowing me to do this short-term, you know, last-minute thing, but I think it worked out okay. Please get Dina's book, and uh, please sign up to the Temple course in January. I think that you will really enjoy it. We feed you very well, too, so. Oh, yes. You will not be hungry one minute. <laughs> not at all. Hungry spirit. I mean, uh, filled in, filled up in spirit yeah. and in yeah. belly, boy, I tell you. And um, go to wisdomandtorevents.com if you're still interested to to uh, go to our websites, giving you a website. Uh, yeah, foundationsintora.com. Go study with Dina there. And if you want to join my website too, I mean, I think that for less than $50 a month, you can join both websites and learn a lot yeah. of a lot of these principles. Please understand Absolutely. that we what we're trying to do is trying to facilitate uh, the body of Messiah to understand this. We give you a lot of access to a lot of teachings that we spend hours and spend a lot of uh, money and resources to get for you. So yeah. may the Lord bless you and keep you guys. Thank you, Dina, for joining me. I uh, love you very much, and I'll see you next week, right? Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be with bells on in Chandler, Oklahoma. You got it. We'll see you soon, and thank you so much. Be blessed, and thank you guys for joining Woodcast. And I'm going to try to be. I try. I'm going to try to be a little bit more um, consistent with these. I've been really busy this year. I've been traveling a lot, but I think I may do one or two as a cult and interviewing people and stuff, and then I may do someone in Israel. So it'll be fun. So anyway, stay tuned for some more, and we're going to have fun, and maybe we'll do another one at you know at camp, Dina. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be good and teach good so we can do one. Okay, no pressure. <laughs> Shalom to all of you, and we'll see you next time. Bye. All right.